bad, bad idea. Self-defense shouldn't have to be an agony or a killing or both. I can be crippled by the pain of a wounded person. I'm also a very good shot because I've never felt that I could afford just to wound someone. Also, I stopped, looked past him for a moment and drew a deep breath, then focused on him again. The worst of it is, if you got hurt, I might not be able to help you. I might be as crippled by your injury, by your pain, I mean, as you are. I've heard uh, Dan Savage make a similar suggestion, but one that would maybe be found on one of those websites that we were alluding to you early. <laughs> where what websites looking... would those be, Jesse? Now that we're actually recording. Uh, oh, the the sort you abs- you accidentally navigate to uh, when you when you come to a pop up uh, farm when you're looking um, for eyeglasses and oh my for god, <laughs> someone to buy sell me eye, a woman to sell me eyeglasses in my zip code and instead you get a woman to do something else in your zip code. <laughs> Strangely enough, it's very strange that this happens. But so Dan Savage, um, uh, disreputable websites, go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dan Savage, disreputable websites, intimacy, and uh, staring deep in the eyes. Uh, yeah, where are you? Are you in uh, Dungeon Bag? I am in Dungeon Bag, yes, uh, 100%. Um, I might be leaving Dungeon Bag for at least five weeks this summer. I was talking oh, with my friend Lindsay this morning. Uh, she and her awesome husband, Chris, uh, need someone to come and take care of their house and bend for about five weeks. Oh, that sounds um, great. Yeah, yeah, it would be good. Um, you know, I'm trying. I'm kind of prototyping perhaps moving to bend, and this would perhaps give me that opportunity is bend um livable in the summer it's high desert right so it doesn't get that hot right it gets very hot okay yeah it's uh it's 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 like you know you're gonna have stretches of 100 degree days these days and fires are a real thing Um, i I don't even 100 degree days is if that's the hottest it gets to me is sort of manageable i mean i grew Mm -hmm. up in the south and like you would generally have a week where it was 100 degrees and it would also be 98% humidity, whereas like mm-hmm. 100 degrees and like 60% humidity is, you're still reasonably comfortable in the shade in that yeah. temperature if you... Yeah, it's, it's very doable. Attitude. At this point, it's the smoke and the fires that, that yeah. can make Bend hard. Um, yeah, yeah, not not know. into the not into smoke and fires. Yeah, I think similarly, perhaps to your experience when you came out to Portland and or the West Coast in general... And I think you said something like, oh, oh, I see what you mean now by crisis uh, when when people out here are talking about um, what's happening for people who are unhoused. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's the same thing. The, the fire, the fires and the smoke is pretty uh, is legit. I'd, I'd say that's that's probably my one hang up about moving to Bend is like, OK, but I mean, in the same way that living in Portland, you lose a significant portion of your year to like cold and wet and rain. Um, in Bend, you lose it to, you know, smoke. Um, Ain't no happiness nowhere. Yeah. How, uh, 
How apropos of, of, of the book we are about to consider today. Maybe maybe you should go to the coastal redwoods terrain of uh, Mendocino County. And... Only to discover that everything you were hoping to get there is dead and burned. And that yeah. instead of finding your sister, you'll find a series of skulls of your family. Yeah, 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 <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Um, that is uh, not uh, a, a product of Chris and my travels uh that uh relates to the novel well last time lauren olamina uh was living with her family in a house in a neighborhood surrounded by a wall wondering and arguing with people about how sustainable that life and that community was going to be and in the very first chapter of the second half of the book it is proven to be unsustainable we also also if you recall she sort of at some point plans to leave, maybe with Curtis, her boyfriend, and head north to try to kind of start Earthseed. That choice, the choice of when, is taken away from her. Um, the community is attacked by some combination of pyro addicts and people who resent their relative wealth. Um, and almost everybody is killed or burned to death. Lauren escapes because she's prepared to escape and because she is lucky. Um... And after the first night, she discovers two other survivors. There may be others out there, um, but she discovers two. Um, Harry, um, who is uh, a boy who was dating her former best friend, um, who she's friendly with. Um, and Zara, who she barely knows because Zara was part of the sort of you know, harem-like community of Richard, uh, I forget his last name. Um, Richard Moss. Richard Moss, whose interpretation of religion suggested that he can have multiple wives, and Zara was one of the wives. So a beautiful young woman who Richard had basically purchased out of a miserable homeless existence on the street to come be a sister wife, uh, which she actually thought was better. Um, and actually re had regard for him and love for him because, in fact, he had offered her a much better deal. Um, and so they're out in the world. They are out on the streets. They are now street poor. And essentially the rest of the book is a, a quest out of doors. Um, it is those three forming a union, a kind of mutual aid society, at one point a pack as Lauren calls it, and then over time encountering other people, having misadventures, and eventually making their way to a kind of hopeful Shangri-La in Mendocino County. Um, you know, when we talked about Neil Stevenson, we had the utopia of Fresno. This is more like the utopia of Wairika. But um, they, uh, and through a series of circumstances, and... Um, there is a bad earthquake and some looting. There is a fight and one of their party dies. There's kind of ongoing violence. And I think maybe the most important thing that happens is that Lauren, of all the people that they meet up with, one of the people is an older man about her father's age named Taylor Bancoli, who is a doctor. Lauren and Taylor Bancoli become lovers. And it turns out that Bancoli has a lot of land on the on uh, the sort of northern coast of California and after some doing invites Lauren and the rest of the crew to come settle on that land and Lauren 
decides this is where she's going to start her intentional Earthseed community. And they make their way there, and they eventually get there. Mm -hmm. Um, After one of their party dies, um, and as you alluded to, when they arrive, Taylor Benkole's sister and family appear to have been murdered and burned out. And so the house and the little bit of stability they were planning on kind of using as a base when they got there is not available to them. Um, And so the final chapter is a long rather expositional debate between the members of whether to stay there or to move on. And in the end, all of the 12 living disciples of Lauren decide to stay with her in that community, and they have a funeral for their dead, and that's the end. And yeah, what would you add to that that you think is essential that I missed? Nothing. I mean, it's a really very straightforwardly plotted second half of the book, um, and it, it kind of brings up a lot of my questions about this book, which we kind of talked about last time, which was like, what is this? <laughs> and, you know, like, what is this book? Is it intended to be just literal denotation about a walk through the post-apocalyptic California landscape? Is it all metaphor? It's a really simple thing, but I mean, you can't you can't read this book and not think about the odyssey the grapes of wrath um other other books that came after it that also are about you know post-apocalyptic long walks or your last D quest <laughs> right exactly right or like yeah any any how many bullets do you have how many dollars left how are your shoes holding up you're at a store you can buy shoes here yeah, I don't know. Maybe there would be this amazing, uh, like, literary critical uh, reading of Parable of the Sower that, in fact, it is just like one long game of Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, the worst game of Oregon Trail you've ever played. Um, I think I've mentioned this to you before. Somebody in my uh, in my MFA program wrote a poem about the Donner Party, mm. in which there was the line, "This is by far the worst party I have ever attended." <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great. It was like a stroke of genius, um, and um, yeah, I am. I, I am. Res- I'm. I'm not struggling with this book because I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm struggling with making sense of it and like how to think about it, whether I think about this book as a straightforward, um, you, you know, Eudora Welty's The Wide Net is a real, uh, is a real parallel here hmm. in terms of like the same, it's the same shape. It just simply gathers people as the, as the account goes on. Yep. Um, and You know, and there's not much of a climax other than walking through the fire that the pyros that they fought kind of set behind them and wondering if they're going to survive it. And they do through no sort of like through nothing that they do. In fact, there's a, uh, a moment where Lauren observes that the fire could have killed them, but it didn't. And that's kind of the climax of the novel. And it just it hinges on a moment of, of happenstance. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of like amazed by this book and I also don't quite know what to make of it. Yeah. I, I, I I feel like I have a thesis about Mm -hmm. what the book wants to be. Um, and maybe in the course of the questions that we've planned to ask each other, we can arrive at that. 
I I think the naturalism is no accident. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is meant to be very gritty and realistic. It is yeah. meant to to be literally an, a speculation about what would happen if these characters were put into this world, and literally what would they have to contend with. And then it is also meant to be allegorical in that sense. And what I'm not sure is how metaphoric it's meant to be. And I'm also not sure if there aren't, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up probably later in this conversation too. But when, when we were talking about the arrest by Jonathan Mm -hmm. Lethem, one of the things I told you that I liked about it was that its ambition was well matched to its craft or to its execution. I'm not sure that's true in this case. I think that it is way more ambitious. And I think that Octavia Butler has every bit as much craft as Jonathan Lethem or any of the other writers we talked about. She's an amazing writer, extremely good. Um, But it's so ambitious and there's so much going on that I wonder if it's a little bit of a mess, even as I think it largely succeeds in its most prime, in its two biggest goals. And one Mm -hmm. is to be a kind of naturalistic adventure, speculative story, and the other to be a kind of founding document for a philosophy cum religion, a kind of allegory that is meant to have a message and to, 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 to be very specific in that way. Uh, but yeah. do you want to, Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I like this kind of like, just what you're talking about, the, like um, the, the metaphorical presence in this book and whether that matches up to the ambition is kind of like my first question that I, that I mm. put in here, um, you know, it's just the, the, the density of the figurative language, like, and trying to figure out like what is figurative and what is just denotative. Um, and like, what does, does she, my big question here is, does she get away with the earthquake? Mm. Because I think in a lesser book, like, or if this was a movie, you, well, it is going to be a, a, a TV show, I believe, but I can imagine going to see a film of this book or doing what we're doing right now and uh, and sort of looking over at the person that you've gone to see it with after the metaphor happens and whispering sotto voce, it's a metaphor. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's the case here. I'm having trouble figuring out if the metaphor is just a metaphor. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, Jesse. Um, and... Uh, or if it, you know, I mean, like so much here is just like redolent with meaning. Lauren yeah. buys a book of poetry. Harry buys a, a a Western. I mean, like these things that are sort of like emblematic of who they are. Um, a rifle isn't just a rifle. It means somebody, means something. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I keep coming back to this, the reading of last time where that, that we kind of were talking about is like, is what most is what like white America would call post-apocalyptic simply the like somewhat more dire straits of what it means to be non-white in America. Yeah. I think that is definitely the case. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I definitely think that this is as much a book about now and a book about the time it was written as about some imagined speculative collapsy 
future. Mm-hmm. And even at the very end, they talk about, you know, walking north to the Canadian border and the factories on the border. I mean, you basically just transpose Mexican migrants, move them one country to the north, you know, and and, you know, you, so I think that part is absolutely the case. I mean, I think the rule that Octavia has set for herself and largely follows is that everything that ha- happens has to have a naturalistic explanation, mm-hmm. yeah. positivistic explanation, a scientific explanation. And it needs to be plausible and not super unlikely within the scope of the world that she created. So, yeah, it's California. There was an earthquake. And I think the point of the earthquake is something that I think is is very accurate and true. And we see in other circumstances, which even out in the world zara says this at one point you know it's not so bad out here most people make it you know like most people survive you know kind of this sort of street poor post-apocalyptic lifestyle um it's tough sometimes you get stolen from sometimes you get beaten up but most people make it um but that so there is a kind of order even Mm -hmm. to the world you know people are walking on the 101 together for the most part they're walking on the 101 in peace. And for the most part, they have food and water and some plan to get shelter that evening. For the most part, they're not going to starve. But then every now and again, somebody gets beaten up and robbed and Mm. somebody gets murdered and somebody gets raped. But for the most part, it holds up. And then I think the thing that the earthquake, the point that it makes is that every now and again, there is an event that just sort of destroys that balance and maybe because there is opportunity and maybe because there is some kind of mass hysteria and maybe because there's just a collective agreement that the rules don't matter anymore Mm -hmm. suddenly everybody's looting yeah and you know and that 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 is observable in human history and human behavior that's not speculative that is what that kind of circumstance is like um and and it could be in an american city it could be in a american rural place it could be in a african country it could be in a central american country most of the time people are going about their business and not messing with each other but every now and again there's low-grade crime and it's a little Mm -hmm. bit dangerous but every now and again something is disruptive and so i don't know I, i don't know if i'm being useful but i don't actually think i see a lot of metaphor in this novel I think I see a lot of allegory and a lot of naturalism. And I think, but I, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't think the pot is metaphorical. I don't think the book of poetry is metaphorical. I think, you know, Octavia is like, yeah, books are valuable. Even in a survival situation, you need, you know, the sucker of literature, you know, you need comfort and we need a bigger pot because there's nine people. And at, at the same time though, if, metaphorical meetings start to suggest themselves to you as the reader i think i think that's fine too i just don't think that she's necessarily always intending them that way i think certain things are i think bancole is allegorical i think the journey is Mm -hmm. allegorical i think the gathering of the disciples is allegorical it's broadly allegorical but i don't see little metaphors i do see little reminders though of this idea that you say is the thing you said last time about it 
is is, is speculative relative mm-hmm. um, because there's people like this. And maybe, I don't know, if that's a good enough answer, I could go into my reading, or do you have more to say that you want to... I wanna... have a, a follow-up from what you just said, um, but mm-hmm. then let's go to your reading. Um, so I think what you're saying, and you know, this might be good advice for us as writers and everyone as writers, is that like if you make the architecture of your world believable, everything in it can either be literal or can be metaphorical. Yeah. If you do the work of, which is probably what the first half of the book sets up, like the first half of the book seems to set the architecture of the world to make this part of the book, which is super allegorical. I mean, by the time that they arrive at the utopia of, uh, what is it, Brancombe? The utopia yeah. of Brancombe. Um, you know, there are there are 13 of them left. And you're like, hmm, 13. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. that's an important number if you are in the sort of, like, you know, Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, uh, continuum. 13, um, including Lauren. Uh, right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so one leader and 12, and 12 followers. <laughs> yes. 12 others. Yes. Yeah. And at one point they were 14, but then uh, right. Jill dies. Yeah. And, you know, and I think you kind of have to do that, right? You have, there has to, um, you know, you uh, once passed along that amazing Bruce Springsteen song to me uh, about the brothers who were like cooking meth in the desert and yeah. the entire like it, it rests on the punchline of like one character digs up all of the money that they've saved and replaces the money like where he's dug it up with his brother's body mm. um and that's the end of the song and it is a mm. perfect you know country music song and you know the like your your narratives have a body count <laughs> they <Yeah>. have to <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah a price has to be paid yeah. And and I think I think uh, yeah, I think I think both of those things are true. And I think the thing you said, you set up the architecture. If the architecture is laden with meaning, then the meanings will suggest themselves. It's like my favorite type of poem to write is Sistina. And you know, you're the poet. I occasionally sit down and write a poem and I, but I think every now and again I'll write a decent Sistina and I don't know where it's going. But I find that if I choose the right six words Mm -hmm. and, you know, listener, if you don't know, Sistina basically repeats uh, six lines over and over again with the same ending word in each line, but in different order, according to a particular pattern, that there there starts to be resonances and meanings and threads and relationships between those words and meanings that I didn't know Mm -hmm. was I didn't know it was going to be there. I suspected, I hoped, but I didn't know it. I had to write this. I had to put it together. And I think it's the same thing is that if you set up this, the situation properly, then meaning will start to reveal itself. I mean, the other thing I think about in that book that I borrowed from you uh, or that you loaned me and then I stole, uh, <laughs> Charles Baxter's <laughs> Wonderlands, um, and then replaced, I, at least I hope right. this, is a, this is a whole, like, a price has to be paid. <laughs> price has to be paid. The book must be replaced. You know, one of my favorite chapters was the 1Q84 chapter. Yeah. And, you know, he's talking about the little people in that book, these weird little sort of demonic slash angelic beings who come out 
at night. And this is a little bit different. Uh, that is not a naturalistic book. That is a surreal book. It doesn't exist in our sort of rules of reality. Whereas I do believe that Octavia wants to, to wants it to be a naturalistic novel. But Murakame, the author of 1Q84, people are like, oh, what are the little people? What do they mean? And he's like, I don't know. I, I just... I just trust my instincts, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a different way to do it. Um, in Murakam, but it's similar. In both mm -hmm. cases, they're setting up the world. They're setting up the architecture. They're populating it with the characters, and then they're seeing what happens. And mm -hmm. um, so, anyway, um, that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't see a lot of metaphor. I do see allegory, I guess, is my final yeah answer. and i guess when i say metaphor i guess i'm really talking about figurative language so mm. metaphor simile allegory parable you know all of this sort of like there's one there's a thing in the world does it stand for something else whether yeah. it's the big arc or whether it's the little items and yeah i know that i've picked like very uh symbolic slash small items for it but i think you're right i totally i i think i think the what's great about this novel is that the two of us can really enjoy it and wrestle with its meanings on a bunch of different levels. Like I enjoy yeah. the, I, I enjoy the ambiguity of right. whether this is figurative or denotative. I think yeah. that's really cool that she's able to pull it off in, in, a, in, in like what's really kind of like stripped down prose. It's yeah. not super lyrical. There's right. like, there's one paragraph where I counted where like the verb to be is repeated every sentence, you know, for like 10 sentences in a row. Um, it's fine. It's real good. <laughs> and there's not a lot of similar simile metaphor in Lauren's first person journaling mm -hmm. like her diary. She doesn't write that way. She writes mm -hmm. and it, it, does, it does, I totally agree with that. And it makes me wonder is is this just maybe a, all writers have strengths and weaknesses and obviously Octavia Butler has tremendous strengths yeah. but is that sort of lyrical thing the thing that Stevenson is just brilliant at you know like crab walking photogs with you know stately ticonderogas you know all of that um that just doesn't seem to be something she does or is she perfectly capable of doing it but just Lauren Olamina doesn't write that way mm, that's a that's a great point yeah and I don't, I don't know. I do think Lauren Olamina doesn't write that way. I think that's mm -hmm. true. But it's also, it's also. I'm curious whether you know, if we read other Octavia Butler novels, do you find that more sort of lyrical and figurative language? Because there are moments. I mean, you noted the smooth-skinned dinosaurs. There, the odd, there's the odd moment. But you know, this. I don't know this novel. I, I mean, I could imagine another way. Like if Cormac McCarthy wrote this book. Well, uh, he did. He did. Yes, he in fact, <laughs> did. Yeah. I, I'm, when Cormac McCarthy wrote this book, sorry, uh, I'm sure it's full of uh, more lyrical language. You know, at some point, we're both. I haven't read The Road. Uh, I no, think we're probably going to have to read it for the yeah. number of times that we either bring it up to. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, we've talked about my yeah. You 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 don't mind McCarthy. I'm not a big fan, but uh, we probably should read that at some point because I I read this and I know something about the road and I was like, oh my god, like this. I want I, like this. That book doesn't seem like it could have existed without this book. 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, that raises an interesting question: whether are all these writers reading each other, or are they imagining something that is actually easy to imagine in these mm-hmm. times? Yeah. And and you know, I mean, in the case of Jonathan Lethem, it's the former, yeah. uh, as we can tell by you know Todd Baum's meditations on post-apocalyptic literature. <laughs> um, but yeah, in the case of Cormac, I'm not so sure. Um, mm-hmm. Let me get to this. Let me get to this reading. This is yeah. early on. I think this is in the either the second chapter of this section or the first, but mm-hmm. this is after Harry, Zara, and Lauren have kind of, they're, they've they found each other and they're helping each other out, but they haven't necessarily decided that they're all going to work together or they're in the midst of deciding that. And we've learned that Zara has stolen some peaches and she's given it to them. Um And so it starts with uh, Lauren speaking. You have a useful skill then, and information about living out here. I faced Harry. What do you think? Her stealing doesn't bother you, he asked. I mean to survive, I said. Thou shall not steal, he quoted, years and years, a lifetime of thou shalt not steal. I had to smother a flash of anger before I could answer. He wasn't my father. He had no business quoting scripture at me. He was nobody. I didn't look at him. I didn't speak until I knew my voice would sound normal. Then I said, I mean to survive. I told him, don't you? He nodded. It wasn't criticism. I'm I'm just surprised. I hope it won't ever mean getting caught or leaving someone else to starve, I said. And to my own surprise, I smiled. I've thought about it. That's the way I feel, but I've never stolen anything. You're kidding, Zara said. I shrugged. It's true. I grew up trying to set a good example for my brothers and trying to live up to my father's expectations. That seemed like what I should be doing. Oldest kid, Harry said. I know. He was the oldest in his family. Oldest hell, Zara said, laughing. You're both babies out here. And that wasn't offensive somehow, perhaps because it was true. I'm inexperienced, I admitted, but I can learn. You're going to be one of my teachers. One, she said. Who have you got but me? Everyone. She looked scornful. No one. Everyone who's surviving out here knows things that I need to know, I said. I'll watch them. I'll listen to them. I'll learn from them. If I don't, I'll be killed. And like I said, I intend to survive. Why did you pick that particular reading? Well, um, I think two or three reasons. And one is I think it showcases Octavia Butler's strengths, um, which is sort of philosophy, character development, conflict. Um, yeah, I guess those and and some sort of orientation to the audience all happening at the same time. And, and also a little bit, there's a little bit of the poetic to it. The, I mean to survive, right? Like that's the repetition. There's almost something of the, the, um, what's the Persian, um, poetic form that has the sort of repeated line. Uh, I, I'm not remembering it right now. Um, 
but there's there's something of the obsessive uh, form to I mean mm-hmm. to survive. But we have these three people getting to know each other a little bit better. We have Lauren articulating what her ethic on the outside is going to be. I mean to survive. I'll steal if I need to. I hope that doesn't hurt anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody, but I mean to survive. She's adjusting to that ethic. She and Harry and Zara are kind of forming the terms of their pack, and they're bantering with each other, and they're getting to know each other. And 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 there's a certain amount of internality, too, mm-hmm. like that moment where Lauren is angry because Harry is kind of maybe scolding her a little bit, and she says, he's not my father. And, of course, her father's dead, um, and she loves her father. So you get that characterization, and it just so much is happening right there. But also part of what's happening in this chapter is we're being told, okay, this is what's going to happen for the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. We're going to see Lauren treating everybody in the world as her teacher. Mm -hmm. And this is a character who is both very naive but also very mature in the sense that she has a plan. She has a system for figuring out how she's going to survive. I'm going to watch everybody. I'm going to learn. They're all going to be my teachers. So in a way, she is a baby compared to Zara, but in a way, she's sort of the oldest of all Mm -hmm. of them, too. And all of that is just contained in this little smattering of dialogue. And so I think it's Octavia kind of at her best, where she's doing all those things at the same time, doing a little bit of exposition in conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, and just impressed, you know, I felt like, okay, I see where this is going. I kind of see the second half of the book stretching out in front of me. And, you know, my expectations were were realized. Yeah, because it is, I mean, it is a very simple book and that structure gets repeated throughout the rest of the book as yeah. we just meet, you know, and, and eventually you start you start anticipating, okay, who's next and what do they mean? Like, who is the next addition to the party and what perspective do they bring that is different from the other ones? And I, I made a few notes in here that, like, you know, Travis is basically the Socratic grit. Like he's the first one to start challenging her in a very Socratic way of like, well, how about this? And how about that? But she also suspects that, you know, he is her first convert. Um, And and Zara is kind of Zara is the sort of moved by circumstance character kind of buffeted by the winds of fortune. I mean, she, there's this moment where um, Lauren catches Harry and Zara having sex and it's when they are just the three of them. And it's a very risky thing because Harry is supposed to be on watch. He and Zara instead are having sex. He falls asleep afterwards. Um, and Lauren is talking with Zara later about it and is like, what happens if you get pregnant? And Zara is essentially like, it either happens or it won't. Yeah. And And she's the character that kind of stands for that, like, well, you can have a plan, but it might not necessarily come to any sort of fruition um and you you get more of that as you kind of go along like every single one of the the people that gets added to the group has some sort of like again just like you've said like it's just them it's just some new people but then there is some meaning attached to each of these characters because you know narratively you would never introduce a character who adds nothing 
They, well, they, they are all foils, and they are all forcing her to revine, refine her idea and her philosophy. Mm-hmm. And But we're also seeing her start to become a leader of people. And it, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. You know, like Zara kind of reminds me of Han Solo a little bit, like the raffish older sibling who actually turns out to be more immature than the little sibling, right? Like, like in the end, Luke is kind of more like the older brother, mm-hmm. uh, at, at, you know, at least in the canonical movies. Um, and, and um, you know, there's some of that too, because she's fatal. She's more worldwise, but she's also more fatalistic and less has, a, less, has less of a vision. And of all of these characters, Lauren is almost always the most clear-headed. And she's almost always the one with the vision. And she, there's so many conversations where she's like, I think we should do this now. And everyone's like, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work out. And she sort of, just like she kind of patiently sort of explained herself to Harry in this mm-hmm. little thing that I just read. She sort of patiently makes her case. Sometimes she has to stifle her anger. And eventually they all end up following her. And, you know, I think part of what we're also doing here is, is you know, I think... I don't know. Tell me if you disagree. I think Octavia. I think Octavia takes Earthseed as seriously as Lauren, or yeah, at I least takes be, it seriously. I, I really believe that. Uh, I would love to know more. I'm sure that she's been asked that at some point. So that's probably some good research to do. Yeah. Um, it has the feeling of. You know, I mean, you're always on dicey. Uh, you're always on thin ice when you begin to conflate. Um, speaker and author, but I don't know. There's something about this book and its straightforwardness and, um, and yes, it's like allegorical nature. Um, I kind of wanted to bring this up earlier, but like, you know, this book comes out in 1993. The LA riots are like less than a year before this. And, you know, and, and if you want to talk about, you know, like an earthquake, like, experience that leads to um you know uh opportunistic looting um then that's that's sitting in the shadow of this book i think you're totally right that she does believe that there needs to be a way out from what we're doing and yeah um, and i mean like one of those denotative and figurative crossovers that i loved so much in this book is when she's talking to ben colway and uh, talks about the concept of heaven. And in Earthseed, heaven is literally the heavens, like <laughs> space. <laughs> and it's yeah, just... It, it, yeah. It's also the home you build, I think. Yeah. At least if I... It, it's the world we make. And, right. and yeah, right. Because God is the world. And and, and, and I think, you know, there are... are I mean, I know there's this one uh, activist and facilitator based in Detroit, Adrian Marie Brown, who routinely quotes Octavia Butler as kind of like part of her core philosophy. And if you're if you're an activist and you're trying to transform our country into something more just and equitable and not in a. Oh, we can slowly reform things through our current political system way, hopefully, but in a urgent no, we need to imagine we need to imagine the world that we want to live in and then we need to create it. And if the political system isn't going to get there, then we're going to make our we're going to do it with or without the political system. Basically, mm-hmm. a nonviolent revolutionary ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and maybe in some cases a violent revolutionary ethos, although I, I don't think so in her case, um, that, that, you know, Octavia Butler's ideas are taken very seriously uh, in that respect. And I have to say, like, as a theology, uh, I find it very attractive myself. Yep. Um, I, you know, I, it, and partly because it doesn't ask that much of you. It doesn't ask you to believe in anything supernatural. It only asks you to believe that you have an ability and responsibility to shape the world around you. And that, and that, you know, that there's little that you can do in the face of change, um, which is why these particular ideas would be anathema to like every established religion out there, because most established religions thrive on the status quo. Right, right. And, you know, Bancole sort of points that out to her at one point. Um, and she says, yeah, that's OK. You know, mm-hmm. it's OK if it changes. It will change. Of course, it's going to change. Although I, I think she also suggests that, you know, perhaps some work needs to be done sort of laying the seeds mm-hmm. uh, for those changes. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's I think that's what's going on here. I mean, it's a story. It's a story that's testing. It's testing and sort of proposing and i mean it's establishing lauren as a prophet and creating a kind of gritty naturalistic scenario in which this person you know raised by a baptist preacher who was a college professor in this gated community could emerge as a prophet in Mm -hmm. this future world and yeah mostly works i'm going to skip my D &D question so do you want to ask one of these either the structure of the attacks or the atypical i think i'm going to go to the atypical narrators because that leads into my follow-on question from that um yeah and so i I just i tossed a few like kind of atypical narrators on here that we've either talked about in other places or that you know i've read before i just brainstormed these i'm sure there are tons that you could come up with in a lot of ways like every narrator is atypical um you know so uh, Lionel Esrog from uh, Motherless Brooklyn, another Jonathan Lethem book, has Tourette syndrome. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Orhan Pamuk's "My Name Is Red." It's uh, it's like the one Orhan Pamuk novel that like a- anybody completes because like all of the other Orhan Pamuk novels, everybody's like, ah, I got through like two thirds of it. Um, but "My Name Is Red" is amazing. It's definitely one that uh, it would actually fit really nicely here. But in that book, you get a series of narrators. In, the first narrator is a corpse. Uh, one of them is the color red. One of them is Satan. Like, it's a remarkable book. Um, the Famished Road by Ben Okray. The narrator is a spirit child who kind of moves mm-hmm. back and forth between the real world and the spirit world. And you're never quite sure whether he's real or not. Um and in each of these, you get something with with Lionel in Motherless Brooklyn. His Tourette syndrome is a way for him to exist in places where he normally wouldn't be tolerated and to yeah. say things that would normally get him beaten up or something like that. What does Lauren's hyper empathy gain her as a character? And what does Octavia Butler gain narratively from that characteristic of Lawrence. Hmm. I don't have an answer for this. <laughs> it's tough for me. This is when I said earlier that I felt like this book didn't 
that that it was that there was a bit too much that its craft or that its realization doesn't quite match its ambition. Mm-hmm. The hyper empathy is one of the things that I have in mind, and it's the hyper empathy is a really interesting idea, but so is Earthseed, um, and so is just the scenario in general. and And I can imagine this book without either the drug that makes people want to burn things. Because I think people would be burning things in this scenario with or without that drug. And I could imagine things without hyper... I could imagine this scenario without hyper empathy. And I also think the hyper empathy is sort of under-deployed. You know, you know that it, it, it manifests from time to time. It gives Lauren a kind of weakness mm-hmm. in this world. And that weakness is manifest as a kind of strength from time to time. Basically, it's sort of like, is it the chimera that, uh, no... What's the beast that if it spills a drop of blood, another one leaps forth from the drop of blood? It's hmm. not. It's not a hydra. Know, does um, that ring a bell for you? It does that ring a bell for sure. Um, All right. Yeah, it well, is definitely. It is definitely in uh, the Greek tradition. Um, I mean, it's in the same boat as like that. You sow teeth in the field, and you know warriors spring up from the teeth. You know that. Sure. Kind of thing. So, so there's this mythical creature that if you don't kill it when you strike it, another one springs up from its yeah. its blood. And maybe what it gets us. This is a. It, I mean, certainly it creates kind of interesting scenarios in these action sequences where Lauren basically becomes incapacitated very quickly. Yeah. Um, which makes the action sequences maybe a little bit more interesting, I suppose. But I also wonder if maybe there's supposed to be some relationship between her hyper empathy and the fact that she is really one of the very few people in her community in the first half of the book who seem to sense the inevitable collapse. You know, the thing that actually ends up happening, which is that the way they're living is not sustainable and that they're essentially going to have to go off into the woods. They're going to have to flee the city. And nobody really wants to believe it. Her dad doesn't want to believe it. And he's the closest to seeing things Lauren's way. Mm -hmm. But his and so maybe there's something about the hyper empathy that makes her that way, that weakness that. But I don't if so, I don't really see the connection. I'm sort of grasping at straws yeah um I, and, I mean, like, and so, yeah we we learn we learn that like it's you know that that slavers prefer people who have hyper empathy which we, is we, interesting and well, it's interesting that a number of the people who they meet towards the end of this journey had been enslaved mm-hmm. and it turns out also have hyper empathy that's also interesting there's some interesting conversations about it there's interesting moments where she tries to hide it but it also, it, I don't know, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I experience it as almost like slightly underdeveloped subplot or sub-theme in the it's, book Yeah, that doesn't I, quite manifest. I think it's really important, and I think you're right, and I, I would, I hope that that is intentional. Hmm. Like, I, I don't know if it's intentional. I hope it is. There's a section on... 278 that upended my reading of mm. of what of what the hyper empathy was supposed to be um in a in a at first deflating 
and then like no that's okay yeah you were this is right that you're wrong um because like i think it's easy to read the hyper empathy as a call for like actually actual empathy in the world Mm. um and then there's this conversation between her and bankol on page 278 in in my edition um he shook his head i've read about the syndrome of course although i've never seen a case i remember thinking that it might not be so bad a thing if most people had to endure all the pain they caused not doctors or other medical people of course but most people bad idea i said i'm not sure take my word for it bad bad idea Self-defense shouldn't have to be an agony or a killing or both. I can be crippled by the pain of a wounded person. I'm also a very good shot because I've never felt that I could afford just to wound someone. Also, I stopped, looked past him for a moment and drew a deep breath, then focused on him again. The worst of it is, if you got hurt, I might not be able to help you. I might be as crippled by your injury, by your pain, I mean as you are yeah and that takes my whole goddamn argument that like that this hyper empathy is standing in for something that we should aspire to and chucks it out the window on the shovel of practicality which is sort of what you've been talking about and i and that's I, yeah. yeah and i don't know i mean what i was the thing she says i'm a very good shot like in terms of turning a weakness into a strength there's a kind of brutality that Lauren has because mm-hmm. of her hyper empathy. And she even said as a kid, when she would get into a fight, she would hit hard first because she knew she had to hurt them enough that that would end the fight. And, you know, that might, that might be a useful post-apocalyptic skill. And there does seem like there's something of the, like Jesus on the cross and suffering for all of us in the hyper empathy, but in a way that feels just a little bit under, developed i you know it is it is you know i i don't quite know what to make of it It, Mm -hmm. because it is the book is often masterful and it is it is an incredible achievement um and it sometimes feels and i I feel this way every now and again with the um there's sometimes it's there's too much exposition i think Mm -hmm. too i'm just like i don't think you're kind of like explaining a lot of stuff that we probably could have just figured out or didn't really need to know. Like, I don't really need to know how many bullets you have, you know? Um, like, it's like I, those it's, sections of the Bible where you're like, Oh boy, I don't care how many wives and daughters Ezekiel had, you know, there's yeah, yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of liturgical like vibe to it. Yeah. And so, so I don't know. I wonder if the book's a little under edited, you know, if she was not thought of as a literary writer, although I think mm-hmm. her craft is literary um but i think maybe because of that she wasn't edited like a literary writer like sci-fi writers don't necessarily have the same expectation of sort of precision and tightness um you know i I, i'm wondering if that might be an explanation you know because interesting i could see that you know that that they're like yeah this is pretty good this is pretty good this one's gonna sell like uh, yeah i don't know a little long at parts but that's all right people will buy it you know like if that's sort of the editorial approach to this i i don't know it's just a hypothesis but and uh, someone else might disagree with us and say no the the hyper empathy is absolutely essential hmm. to this novel the other thing is that i i know there are two sequels Um, and the book does end in a way that feels like she had sequels in mind. And so maybe, maybe there's a setup 
you know, maybe the hyper empathy is a setup for the future that she is imagining uh, mm. for Lauren Olamina. I hear us trending towards more Star Wars comparisons. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but I really, Indeed. while you were talking about uh, Zara as uh, perhaps a Han Solo figure, I really wanted to make a crack about like towards the end of Return of the Jedi when somebody looks at Solo and is like, General Solo. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not really comfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they asked me. Yeah, um, it's, <laughs> right. it's, yeah, La- something it's Lando, like that. isn't it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, look at you, General Solo. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that is part of the journey of Han Solo, right? Is that he goes from charming, raffish, but irresponsible rogue to mm-hmm. kind of responsible middle-aged adult, yeah. um, with still a charming, cro- crooked smile. You know, yeah. uh, he never, never loses that. <laughs> My hands are dirty too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or my favorite from him. You know where they're t- admonishing him to t- 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 uh, be sneaky as he's sneaking up on some stormtroopers. It's me. <laughs> I know, I know. In some ways, Harrison Ford invented cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah, it's effortless for him. It's amazing. You know? Um, so I have so I have a question and then also an observation, and mm-hmm. I think this gets into where my biggest dart at this book might okay. be. Um, I, I, first of all, I want to say all books, if you look closely enough, I think you can see the seams. Mm-hmm. And one of the places I see the biggest seam is the stroke of luck of Lauren running into Bancole and Bancole essentially having the absolute perfect bit of land and for the creation of Earthseed. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, did that did that bother did you notice that and did that bother you? It bothered me when he kind of proposed it. Mm. Um when he was like, Hey, I'm taking you out of here. And at first I was like I was like this fifty seven year old guy no way is this fifty seven year old dude going to be be able to overmatch uh Lauren Olamina as we know her so far. And then, yeah, I mean, it just like a lot of his backstory where he was like, yeah, I was thinking about flying up there. <laughs> and then it's it's a, it's an incredible stroke of luck that yeah. she encounters him. And I think the reason it bothers me is that I think the book is meant to be a test of Earthseed as a theology. Mm-hmm. And part of what Earthseed does is reject her father's way. His religion, but also his plan of we're just going to make a wall in the city, look after one another and stay here. And ultimately, all Lauren does, Lauren does almost she almost is recreating exactly what her father creates just in the country. It's just just the old sci-fi pastoral again. And I'm actually fine with that because Lauren from the beginning is both a foil to her father, but also draws so much of herself from her father. So the idea that what Lauren ultimately does is a version of what her father was trying to do, I think that's actually fine and beautiful. But her father, I said this last time, her father's community ended due to some bad luck, inevitable Mm -hmm. bad luck. And I feel like in this book, all of the ideas... Anybody's idea about how you should live, nobody gets a break. Mm-hmm. Nobody has it easy. 
Nobody gets a stroke of luck. And for Lauren Olamina to be able to build this utopian community in this beautiful land that still has water in Mendocino County and whoever else is there is probably not going to mess with them. It feels too lucky. And I also think I don't necessarily like the politics of it because I think in the world that Octavia Butler has created, nothing like that comes without a fight. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, they had to fight to get there. And yes, they got... They're, she's doing a lot of work to pay the price, you know, yeah. to put the body, to swap the body for the dollar bills, you know, in the Bruce Springsteen. She's making Lauren pay a lot of prices um, for it. And poor Bancole has to lose his wife. Or, sorry, not his wife. Poor Bancole has to lose his sister. And I think that's part of the price. I think mm-hmm. that's that's Octavia being like, this can't be easy. Nothing's ever easy in this world. But it actually ultimately is, I just think, a little too easy for Lauren. And I think if this story were less naturalistic and more simply mythological, that would be okay. But that scene really actually is the one that bothers me the most. And I think probably she could have fixed it. She could still have had Lauren end up there. Um, But I don't know. I kind of feel like, I feel like also sort of politically... There's no free land, you know, like, and I think that's the thing about revolutions. She's trying to do a revolution. Revolutions always are terrible. Mm -hmm. Maybe what comes out of them ultimately is better. And there are some nonviolent revolutions, like, say, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But for the most part, whenever somebody overturns a system to create a new one, that process is always awful. Mm -hmm. And Lauren doesn't really, like... I think really Lauren would have had to take that land from somebody, and from somebody that, else. That leads to my probably last question of this book um, for today. Um, where is the climax of this novel? Mm. Yeah, I don't. I don't have an answer. I don't. I didn't really feel a climax. I felt yeah. it was a sort of soft landing, and also, you know. I felt like the last chapter was actually one of the weakest chapters of the book, even yeah. though there's some beautiful things that happen in it. I think I think there's really powerful moments on the road and mm-hmm. encountering the disciples, bringing them in and some of the conversations, even the relationship, the romantic relationship between Bancole and Lauren and his discomfort with that. And their coming together feels it, it just wonderfully imagined. The Lauren's internality feels great. And in that last chapter, there's like a 27 minute conversation they have about whether they should go to Canada or not. Yeah. And they're still they're still doing she's still doing exposition. She's still like, well, the road to Canada is like, you know, this much way. And there are factories there and there's people or you could become a driver. And there's this whole thing about whether or not Harry would become a slave, a slave driver, driver or, or not. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, Harry's not going to become a slave driver. We know him. He's not going to do that. Come on. And he's offended by it. And I'm like, I don't. And it, it just seems like it's just in there to introduce the idea of slavery one more time, as you yeah. say. And again, I, I, I do want to make it clear. I think this is a really, really, really good book. And yeah. I'm grasping for weaknesses. Um, but I don't think there's much of a climax. I do think they she could have arrived at the same place somehow. Mm-hmm. And I think that I do like the burial you know, of both Bancole's sister 
we think, and mm-hmm. children plus the dead that everybody has. I like the idea of that. And yeah, and there, there is, yeah, there's something of the, it's like, it's like the last scene in Empire Strikes Back without <laughs> the confrontation between Darth Vader and Luke. It would just be like if Luke went there and like, you know, they got, you know, Han got frozen into carbonite and then he got his hand shot and he just got shot by a stormtrooper and had to right. run away, you know, yeah. as opposed to meeting his father who cuts his hand off. Right. Except for like, it, yeah, for all of that, if they, if they had replaced that with like a 20 minute like denouement on the deck of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> right. Like, like where it's just a bunch of talking. <laughs> Luke and Lando and Leia have like a 20 minute argument about like whether they should go join the fleet or like go back to Tatooine. And yeah. And like 3PO and... comes in and is like, would anybody like some tea? <laughs> and like, and you know, there's factories on Tatooine now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, would yeah. you want to go there? You know, I don't, doesn't make, yeah, it's a weird. There's a bunch of huts. It's probably dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, and then maybe part of the answer here in, is maybe maybe Octavia thinks of this as a third of a novel. Mm-hmm. You know that this is a volume, not yeah. a novel, um, and that it kind of feels more like that to me. Yeah, it feel it. It felt like the fight with the unpainted paints could have been the climax, but then the energy kind of gets robbed by the walk through the fire, which also feels like it could be climactic. And so I'm in that last chapter, like grasping for like what's going to be the climax here. Is Ben Cole going to get like taken by the cops and Lauren has to go get him? Nope. <laughs> nope. No. And that whole thing just seemed to be a way of kind of like giving us a little meditation on the power of the police and the corruption of the police. Yeah. And that though that did feel metaphorical to me. That did, you know, that moment where she says like you know, I mean, you have this quote in here, I wonder what a badge is other than a license to steal. And then she also says, and I wonder what the police used to be like to make people my dad's age and Ben Coley's age still instinctively trust Mm -hmm. them. And that to me feels very now, right? Mm -hmm. And generational, both within like the African-American community and also the broader American culture of Mm -hmm. how younger people it seems like tend to be more suspicious of police these days and older people are still sort of more likely to have an image of, Oh yeah. The friendly person who comes and helps you rescue your cat from the roof, which by the way, I'm sure there are still police officers who will come and help you rescue your cat from the roof. Totally. 100%. I think we're probably headed to trivia. Okay. Um, trivia. So, um, okay, so we learn that one of the reasons Lauren likes Taylor Van Cole when they meet, she, he clearly reminds her of her father. And one of the things that Van Cole and her father have in common is that at some point in their life, either their parents, I think their parents chose an African name. In both cases, I believe a Yoruba name. Um, and Olamina, it turns out, means something in Yoruba like this is my wealth or a valuable thing, a jewel or something like that. And Benkole apparently also has a meaning in the Yoruba language. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of suggestions, but there was one that I saw was I found in a book called The Melting Pot of Baby Names, first published in 1987. 
um, which seems like a likely source for Octavia. Um, so it is a name that makes sense allegorically mm-hmm. for Bancole, and it is an admonition. Um, was it? Is, does Bancole and Yoruba mean a bring forth from the land? B walk with me or C help me build my house bring forth from the land walk with me or help me build my house Whew, boy it could very easily be any of those um i'm going to I'm going to do what I usually do, which doesn't often res- with a 50, 50 strike rate. <laughs> I'm going to toss out the thing that seems the most obvious to me, which is to get rid of walk with me. Um, and I am going to go with, I'm going to go with help me build my house. You are correct. Oh, <laughs> Ding. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, it, I, 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 yeah it really I've could have been it. one or three. It, yeah, I have seen it also translated as build my house for me. But then mm. in this particular book, The Melting Pot of Baby Names, uh, it, it, it rendered it as help me build my house. And I, I, I imagine that is not an accident. Got it. Okay. Um, my question, so your question sort of reached back into the past of the source material. My question for you is about uh, works of art that Parable of the Sower inspired. Oh. Um, So, reputedly, uh, Parable of the Sower is a big inspiration for which of these three massively successful uh, pop albums from the 2010s? Oh, my God. Is it A, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly... Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy or C Beyonce's Lemonade Hmm. I'm almost completely unfamiliar with Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly Um, Kanye's My Twisted Dark Fantasy I know a little bit better um, I'm quite familiar with Lemonade. Lemonade does not seem to have anything to do with Parable of the Sower. The one thing is that the the presence of Beyonce's father in the lyrics is the one thing that does feel like a connection there. But to me, Lemonade, as I, at least the songs I know and have thought about and listened to, to me have much more to do with kind of nostalgia um, than a sort of future looking. Um, so I think I'm going to go with A um, just because I love the title and there are pimps in Parable of the Sower and somebody in Parable of the Sower would pimp a butterfly. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go with A. I love your and logic. And because I don't really like Kanye that much, to be honest. Good call. I love your logic. It is uh, it is Lemonade. Uh Beyonce cites Parable of the Sower as an influence in the album and also the film that accompanied the uh, the album, uh, um, and uh, yeah, that uh, that that was an important that Octavia Butler is an important artist for her. I I that that Octavia being important for her in the way that Beyonce is actually often. 
playing with kind of futuristic imagery, but also playing with imagination and creation mm-hmm. in this sort of sense. You know, I don't think I don't think this was a track in Lemonade, but there was a song where, that where they released a video not too long ago where she and Jay Z are in amazing uh, costume in the Louvre that is just absolutely incredible and it does create this sort of black reimagination of the renaissance in Mm -hmm. a way that is uh beautiful weird sort of afro futurism but also afro renaissanceism in its own way like past looking version of afro futurism sort of like uh, you see other examples of that, um, you know, sort of period drama reimagined with with black faces rearranged and reimagined yeah. more inclusively. Well, I'm sad to have gotten that wrong. Uh, Beyonce is awesome, and yes. so I'm honored to have uh, been stumped by such a great, uh, brilliant musician, artist, and person. So I guess I will ask you, Chris Bag, um, will you read Parable of the Sower again? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm curious about how this book works. I, I you're sort of in the same way that you said that you would read Visit from the Goon Squad again. I bet I'll read this again. I'm intrigued by the stitching of it. I'm intrigued by the prose. Um, you know, as somebody who probably over relies on figurative language, um, I am impressed by the way that she seems to include figurative language without making a big point about it um, is really impressive to me and something that I would, I would like to be able to rest on the laurels of just saying what the fuck is going on. And, um, and I think that that she does an amazing job of that. And so I will definitely read this again as a piece of craft. I think I probably will, although probably not for a while because it is a heavy read um and it is this was definitely a book where i would read a little bit of it you know in a day or another day and then i would generally find myself wanting to read another novel before i went to bed to sort of wash it out of my brain so that i could sleep peacefully um like the road it's not a pleasant world to imagine Hmm. and so uh i don't know that i'll do it in a hurry although maybe um, I could imagine if I was ever in a situation to sort of teach uh, literature, storytelling, history, Afrofuturism, African-American imagination of certainly reaching for this novel, too. So yeah. I may end up reading it again just because of because of needing to me. This is sort of like one of these great American novels that we should all know. Like, I, I, I feel like it has its flaws and I think we have enumerated them, but I feel like we should know a parable of the sower as well as we know a great Gatsby and mm-hmm. the sun also rises and, you know, a hand in you know, uh, the grapes of wrath. Um, yeah. in God, fact, I can't it, believe we, should... we didn't bring up the grapes of wrath at all in this episode. <laughs> you want to tuck that back in? I mean, it, that no, is an antecedent mean, for sure. That's God, yeah. I was like, they're in um, Salinas. They're eating grapes that yeah. nothing good is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I did not carrying catch babies along with them. Oh my god! I did not catch the allusion to that because I I used to live near Salinas, so I oh, was yeah. just imagining like, oh yeah, Salinas, uh, and and of course, like I did actually think, oh yeah, that's where Steinbeck grew up. I wonder if that's a little nod to a favorite oh, it's writer. Got, it's got and be. then 
it's and, gotta but it, be. I had not even noticed the grapes. Yeah, uh, I was like, yeah. I was like, oh god, something terrible is about to happen. Yes, and uh, in, indeed. But of course, yeah. if you want, you know, it is sort of like the weather in Portland. Like, if you want something terrible to happen in this book, just wait. Just. <laughs> Well, that was really fun. Uh, yeah. That was a bit quick. I guess we could. I guess we can leave it at that and enjoy an easy edit. Totally. Do you want to do the tell our listeners what's next, and then do oh, yeah, thanks yeah. or do you want to do yes? Do you want to do the outros? Yeah, we totally, we totally should do that. Yeah. <laughs> <It was like>, okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not like a seasoned professional radio producer or anything. <laughs> hey, watch it, buddy. Um, <laughs> uh yeah you're like uh yeah i'm like uh zara and you're lauren you know you're you're like i'm gonna figure out exactly what you know i think actually in this moment knows. you're kermit and i'm fozzy <laughs> you're like well, well, okay one time you got me you got me fozzy yeah. <laughs> or or like fozzy's like uh kermit kermit and then like you know something oh, falls on fozzy yeah yeah <laughs> Um, well, uh, next listener, uh, will be NK. <laughs> it is not appropriate. This is not the book to do Kermit. <laughs> I will tell you. I, I don't have a Miss Piggy, apparently. That's a pretty good Miss Piggy. That's not bad. That's Ahem. not bad. I will tell you what the next book will be. <laughs> Sort of somewhere between Piggy and Gonzo. Piggy, Gonzo, and Yoda, which same voice actor. Same voice. So yeah, you're yeah. in the you're in the ballpark. So um dudes, uh, listener. Why don't you tell our listeners what's next? Uh next on Upper Middle Brow, uh, we will be uh talking about NK Jemison's uh the fifth season. Part one. So read half of that book and join us next time on Upper Middle Brow. Also, we do have. Oh, I, this is something I might tack this on to the end. But one other thing I want to say to you, listener, is that we also have some summer reading episodes coming up that we're planning, and we would love to hear from you. So if you have a book you want to recommend to all, oh, I don't know, 60 other Upper Middle Brow listeners and the future Upper Middle Brow listeners who, of course, are legion and number in the thousands, um, the best way to do it would be to record a voice memo on your phone and attach that to an email uh, to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. So say who you are, say a summer book that you think people would enjoy reading and give us three or four sentences about what you like about it and send it to hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. And thank you, all of you 60 present listeners and Legion future listeners for listening today. Uh, as always, uh, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And a five-star review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way to helping other people find the show. If you leave us a five-star review and uh, write something in that review, we will read it on the air. But... Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes are leading this trek to Mendocino County. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bagg. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com, and we could really use some more ratings and some more reviews. So more ratings, please more do ratings, so. please. We're so like uh, the old man begging to roast his potato on your the fire of your iTunes review. <laughs> Could we please just 
Roast our podcast on your fire. May the fire some, of your regard. Please, sir, may I have another iTunes star? I'm very hungry. Hey, listeners. Chris here. I just wanted to give you a quick update. Uh, as opposed to what we just said in our episode, instead of moving on to N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season, next up we're going to be doing some summer reading episodes. We recorded an awesome episode last week with a couple of English teachers and writers and professional readers, Adam Brock and Lindsay Lejoie, and you are going to hear that in our feed coming up next. Uh, talking about summer reading books, and it's a really great conversation and really fun. And since we begged, begged, Oliver Twist style for please more reviews, we've got a review. And this is called Book Club Without Shame, five stars by Chicago Leah, the host of the wonderful podcast Finding Favorites with Leah Jones. I learned about Upper Middlebrow on Twitter through mutuals with the hosts Jesse and Chris. I'd gone through a Neil Stevenson phase, and they kicked off the podcast with him, so I started listening. While I rarely read or reread the books in time for the podcast, Jesse and Chris have created a fun book club without the shame of showing up when you didn't read the book. Upper Middlebrow has a fun grad school hangout vibe. The hosts are incredibly smart and well-read, but there are inside jokes and good vibes, too. Leah, thank you so much. Both of us loved being on your show, which is excellent. Finding favorites, everybody, go and listen. And we really appreciate all of your continuing reviews out there. Thanks for listening, everybody.